Good day, everyone. Hope the uh, the rest of Invest was as good as the first part of Invest. I had to come back late last night to preach this morning, but uh, I've heard good things about the rest of Invest. Uh, but now we're going to switch our minds for those of us who were there from uh, the Book of Revelation over to the Book of Judges. Uh, so turn back to that first reading we had. Uh, that Jordan read so well for us with uh, all those strange names and all of that sort of thing. He did the, the perfect way to read Old Testament readings. He did it confidently, so even if he wasn't getting them right, no one noticed. So, well done. All right, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Judges, that even though it was written 3,000 years ago about the people of Israel, we thank you for the way it still speaks to us today. We thank you for the way it teaches us about you, and in particular, points us forward to Christ, our Saviour. But we also thank you that, uh, as we just read in 1 Corinthians, it acts as a warning to us. And so we pray that we might learn the lessons that sadly the Israelites did not. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I had to take my uh, car in this week to get fixed. Uh, some people are going to judge me at this point. Uh, I'm just warning you, if you're a car person... You are going to judge me for what I just tell you. Some people love cars. I like driving my car and that's about it. You, you know, that's about the attention it receives from me. My father judges me. He, uh, every time he comes, he looks at my car and he just sort of shakes his head, sadly. Because uh, he's the sort of person who, you know, changes the oil himself and tops up the fluids every week and checks the tyre pressure. I'm the sort of person who gets my car serviced once in a while and that's it and I drive it but generally I just leave but then worse the worst habit I have is I have this habit of then ignoring warning signs so a couple of weeks ago the car a rattle started sound started you know like you know that sort of noise and I went oh well there's I should do something about that uh, and then probably forgot about it and then about a week later the rattle got louder you know and I did the only logical thing you do at that point I turned up the radio so that I couldn't hear it uh, then a light went off on the dashboard that looked quite serious. Uh, and at that point, I thought, do you know what? I should get the book out of the uh, glove box and uh, have a look at what that means. And then didn't. Um, and then, of course, Victoria rings me, and she's the one driving the car. And she says, the whole car is shuddering, and, and I don't know if I'm going to get home. So she bears the consequences for my failure. Um, and so anyway, I had to take it in to get fixed, and 700 and something dollars later. But anyway... At that point, I blame the car. Why have we got such an unreliable car? Or I blame the mechanic. You know, you serviced this car. I don't say it to him. This is what I'm thinking in my mind. You serviced this car 12 months ago. And I know the sticker says I was meant to bring it in again six months ago. But, but you, <laughs> you serviced it. You know, if I just crashed it into a wall and totaled it, I think it would be obvious. We could say, my fault. I did it. My bad decision. Uh, it's just that instead of one bad decision, I made lots of little bad decisions and that's why I had to pay the money to the mechanic on Friday. Uh, you see, I'd caused the problem. Just as much as if I'd driven into the wall, it was just lots of little bad decisions instead of one big one. And you know, generally that is what people do with God when they walk away from Him. Very, very rarely, very few people I know wake up one day and say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, I am now going to chase the things of this world. Very few people just sort of go from that to that on one day and that's the difference. No, they make little decision after little decision. 
about all sorts of different things, about how they spend their time, about what they do with church, about whether they prioritise reading the Bible, about whether they pray or not, and about their relationships and about their money. They make all sorts of little decisions and each individual decision doesn't seem that big a deal. And in fact, often, if you challenged them about that little decision, they could rationalise it and they could explain it and they could explain to you why it's not a sin and why it's not expressing a lack of faith in Jesus. But over time, all those little decisions add up to the car crashing of faith. And that's what we see for the Old Testament people of God in today's passage. You see, there is no one stunningly bad moment here. There's nothing like, you know, you know certain points in the Old Testament where they do things where you go, why hasn't God judged them? You know what I mean? Where they, where they set up idols and, and worship them and, or, or, or they oppress the poor, whatever it is they do, one stunningly bad thing. But by the end of this passage, God has come and explicitly declared his judgment on his people because of all these little decisions they made. So let's see why and hopefully learn from their mistakes. So open up Judges chapter 1, which we uh, picked up at verse 21. Now you remember uh, last week's passage, I hope you weren't here last week, listen to the podcast because that sets up the whole series, you know, on Judges. Uh, but you remember the job God has given His people? It is, broadly, take possession of this land that I've given you. So I've promised you the land, I'm giving it to you, your job is to go in and take possession of it, okay? But part of that is, God says, I want you to drive out the wicked people who are in that land. So remember we saw last week, it's not just like they're not innocent bystanders in the way, they are people who God for hundreds of years has declared His judgment on because of their immorality and the way they have responded to God. So God says, whatever you do, drive them out of the land and whatever you do, don't make connections with them. Don't make covenants with the Canaanites, don't make promises to them. In fact, what I want you to do is smash their idols, smash their temples, and don't let your children marry their children, just don't connect with them. That's what he called on his people to do. And you remember how it all started so promisingly in last week's passage with victories, where they took over the land and drove the people out, and blessings. You remember they were getting married, they were, there were springs in the desert, it was, it was blessings because, and we saw why, because they listened to God, and they obeyed him. That's from their side, they listened to God and they obeyed him but even more than that we saw how it was because God was with them and if God is for you then who can be against you? But right at the end of last week's passage there was a little hiccup and I didn't point it out, I just sort of skipped over it and I was really really encouraged how many feedback slips I got from people who said but what about verse 19? Why didn't you mention verse 19? It's the best way to get people to look at their Bibles. Everyone's head went down to verse 19 at that point. Look at verse 19. It said, The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. That's the bit I focused on. But then it says, But they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. Now, humanly speaking, that's clear. The Israelites are actually quite backward. They only had bronze weapons. Uh, they had no iron weapons, unlike their opponents. And they had no iron, uh, no horses and no chariots. So how on earth could they beat people with iron chariots? But then you think, well, hang on, if God is with you and God has promised you the victory, and actually in a couple of chapters, God gives them victory over people with iron chariots, even though they don't have any. So what's going on here? And it's just the first hint that everything is not right. And it's going to become explicit and sort of build up 
over the rest of the chapter. And what you see, I think, is that the problem here wasn't with God. I actually think a better translation there is not they could not, it's they did not. It doesn't make it explicit, just sort of leaves it hanging, but you're left to ask, was the issue that they went in, gave it a red-hot go, and people drove them back and they lost, or was the issue that they were slipping into old habits of doubting God, and they just said, they've got iron chariots, we couldn't possibly beat them, let's stay in the hill country. You see, they were starting to think, is this possible for us, rather than trusting in God and His promises? And that trajectory then continues right through today's passage. So you get the Benjaminites in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Judah had already smashed Jerusalem for Benjamin, but the Jebusites hung around and the Benjaminites did nothing about it. It's not that they could not, they just did not. It was too hard. Jerusalem's on a mountain, it's really hard to take. The Jebusites would have had better, better weapons, a better position. But you're left asking, or you're meant to ask, but if God is for you, then why aren't you doing something about it? But then things get better. We get another great victory. Our Bible translators even tell us it's a victory in the heading. Do you see it there? Success of the house of Joseph. Always remember, the headings are not part of the Bible. Always remember that. And always remember, they are often really unhelpful. Because I want to ask was this really a success? So let's look at what happened, look at it with me. The house of Joseph that it talks about, that's the two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, they were the sons of Joseph, so the tribe was split between them, and Bethel was a really important town about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And they took it in a really smart, strategic way. So if you were wanting a guide to how to be a smart conqueror of another nation, this is really smart. They sent spies to check it out. You don't want to go into a fight not knowing how strong your enemy is. And then they took advantage of a man coming out of town and they offered him a deal. They said, tell you what, we'll let you and your whole family, we'll let you live if you sneak us into town. And that's what happens. Now, if you know your Bible, you are immediately comparing this with something that happened only a few years before it in the book of Joshua. What are you comparing it with? Rahab and the taking of Jericho and it seems really really similar and on that occasion God blessed them and they're obedient to God see for all the similarities and the seeming success there's a big difference can you see what it is the big difference is they didn't go and say we need to strike a deal with a Canaanite with Rahab she offered them the deal see the difference here they're not trusting God they're saying hey we'll make a covenant with you and you'll help us out but more than that Rahab became an Israelite Rahab actually repented said my gods are hopeless they don't even exist I want to be with you I want to worship Yahweh this guy keeps worshiping his God in fact they let him go and set up a whole new city a few miles up the road Luz was what the Canaanites called Bethel and so basically they said we're going to destroy Luz like God says, but you can go and make new laws happen, sort of like York and New York, you know, like that. Well, he just started a new laws, a mirror image, where he built his idols to Baal, and he built his idols to false gods, and he involved himself in pagan immorality. See, this was no victory, this was no success, they weren't doing what God wanted them to do, they were just moving the problem a few miles up the road, and that city was then going to be a problem for the next generation of Israelites. And it just gets worse from this point on. Look at verses uh, 27 to 36. They summarize what happened with each of the northern tribes. So verse 27, Manasseh 
failed to take possession of their part of the land. Verse 29, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun failed to drive out. And in each of those cases, it looks like they were sort of successful because after a while, they made the Canaanites their slaves. They, they, it says they made them work for them as forced labour. But then you've got to think, well, surely if you can do that, you could drive them out like God wanted you to, couldn't you? But then it gets worse, verses 31 and 32, the Asherites don't even manage that, just as they just lived amongst the Canaanites, just join in with them. And by the time you get to the Danites, well, the Amorites don't even let them come down out of the hills. They don't take possession of the land God had given them. And so we're left asking, how does this happen? See, if God is for them, I said last week, if God is for you, who can be against you? Why are they failing? But again, I think as you look at this, you see the problem is with them, not God. You see how it says there in verse 27, Manasseh failed to take possession. And then the same in verse 29, Ephraim failed to drive out and so on. Now you could read that as they made every effort. But it seems it's actually more, they did not drive out the people. You see, they failed in the sense that they didn't try. It seems they chose not to. Perhaps it looked too hard for them. These people had better weapons. But I think it seems smarter to them to keep the Canaanites as their slaves. That's a humanly smart thing to do. Let them do all the work and we'll just eat all the fruit. You see, it's not that God's promises had failed. If they had trusted God, one man could have beaten all the Canaanites. And you see that at other parts in the Bible. We'll see it with some of the judges later on. No, the problem was with them. Which brings us to the most important final part of our passage where God comes and tells them what's wrong. So come with me to chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now this is a massive moment. Uh, angels didn't just sort of pop up all the time. This is a massive moment and the angel of the Lord is a very mysterious figure in the Old Testament. We're going to meet him a couple of times in the book of Judges. Uh, and you've got to, is he an angel like Gabriel? You know, is he an angel like, you know, Gabriel who appears to Mary and tells her about what's going on and so forth? Or is he more than that? Because just look at verse 2 and look at how he actually speaks as God. Do you see that in verse 2? He says, I brought you out of Egypt. No angel brought them out of Egypt, only God can say that. See, personally, I think this is what we call a theophany. Sorry to give you a big word on a Sunday night. But what it is, I think, is an appearance of God to them. They didn't know how to describe it, so it gets called an angel of the Lord. But it's like the burning bush when God appears to Moses. And I wonder if it's actually, just for those who really want to go another step and think harder about Christian doctrine, I wonder if it's actually a Christophany, if this is the Son of God appearing to talk to them. But that's for another day. We won't get caught up on it now, especially not after four talks on Revelation at invest. <laughs> but even if it isn't, it's very clear that it's God who is speaking through this being. Okay? So you see how massive this is? It's not like God appeared all the time and said, I'm going to talk to you. This is a, this is a once in a generation moment. Why is God choosing to speak in such a direct way right now? Well, it's because he is so angry and so disappointed with his people. And what does God say? Look at verse 2. I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I have promised to your fathers. I also said, 
I will never break my covenant with you. I think you can almost hear the, the sadness in, in God's voice. He's saying, I, I am the God who saved you. I have led you to this land. I have made promises to you. I have kept every one of them. I've kept my word. But, look at verse 2, you are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land and you are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? See, God's saying, I've been faithful to you, but you have not been faithful to me. I've kept my covenant with you, but you have not kept your covenant with me. I told you, you cannot bind yourself, you cannot make commitments to people who don't worship me. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, I worship Yahweh, but I'm going to throw my lot in with the people who worship idols. See, it all started to go wrong at their great victory at Bethel because you made a deal. The actual word comes from the word for covenant, that they, when it talks about what they did with the man, they made a covenant with him, they made a commitment to him. I said I was with you but instead of trusting me, you make a covenant with a pagan to take the city and then you just let him go and rebuild his idols and rebuild his altars. See God is telling them, the reason you have not been able to drive out the Canaanites, the reason so many of you are still hiding up in the hills, it's not because they've got iron chariots, it's not because they're more numerous than you, it's not because I'm not strong enough, it's because you are unfaithful, because you didn't trust me enough to obey me. And so God tells them the consequences for their sin, look at verse 3, therefore I now say, I will not drive out these people before you, they will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. That verse is actually the whole rest of the Old Testament summarized in one verse. It's the key to the whole rest, it's the story of the whole rest, the rest of the Old Testament is Israel struggling because they never really take possession of the land and that's the rest of the book of Judges and the rest of the whole Old Testament. Israel never got to experience the wonderful fulfillment of God's promises to them. They had the land but it was always a struggle and they were always facing temptation, they were always failing, they were always falling and if ever they were tempted to say, why God? Why do you let this happen to us? God could say, go and read Judges chapter 2 verse 3. It's because you made a deal with a man in Bethel and because you didn't trust me enough to go in and take the land I told you I would give you. See, God could say, I told you that day, you cannot claim to worship me and still want to be friends with this world. And if you want to write down a summary of the whole book of Judges, that's it. You cannot claim to worship God and still want to be friends with this world. Well, that was them. What about us? Three lessons I want to draw as I close. The obvious lesson is the negative one from Israel's example, but I'll come to that second because the first, first lesson for us is actually a positive one and it can get lost because here the focus is much more on God's judgment. But this is the first lesson. God is faithful even when we are not. This is so important and if you learn nothing else I hope you learn this. God is faithful even when we are not. You see by rights God could have said that's it, I kept the covenant, you broke it, 
I'm finding a new people of God. I'm taking away the land and the hope of future blessing. And to be perfectly frank, I think that's what most of us would do to someone who broke a covenant with us. But God didn't. They faced the consequences of their sin, but God never turned his back on them. And all through the Old Testament, even when whole generations turn their backs on God, there are some points in the Old Testament where you say, was there anyone anywhere worshipping God in the whole nation? But even through that, God remained faithful. God sent judges to keep saying, come back to God. And then after that, God sent prophets to say, keep coming back to God. And even when he finally kicked them out of the land, he kept a faithful little remnant. And through them, he prepared the way for the new covenant that he would make not just with Israel, but with all of us. And that's the covenant that Jesus sealed by his blood. And that's where he dealt with the problem once and for all, where he said, my people can't be obedient but Jesus will be obedient for them. And if people will just trust Jesus, then they can be my people and receive my blessing. And this is so important. Under the new covenant, if you trust in Jesus, your place in God's kingdom, our place in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, it is not on the basis of our obedience. If it was, no one would be in it. It's on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. So even if we stumble, even if we fail, yes, we will face consequences for our sin, but if we are repentant and if we put our trust in Christ, nothing can take away our place in God's kingdom. And that is because God is faithful, even when we aren't. So don't ever forget that. That's the positive lesson. But our second lesson is the warning of this passage and it's where I started this sermon and it's what I call the slow drift to unfaithfulness. Doing things that are inconsistent with our faith is always easy to rationalise and always easy to explain and always easy to justify on an individual basis. I reckon if you went and interviewed the, the tribes of Joseph they would have explained why it was an entirely rational thing to do and an entirely godly thing to do to make a deal to save people's lives, they might have said, to get the town of Bethel. And then each of the other tribes would have explained to you why it was a right decision for them not to drive the people out of their lands. Doing things that are inconsistent with our faith is always easy to rationalise and explain and justify on an individual basis, but God cannot be mocked. And the sad reality is all those little things add up. And what happens is with each decision, with each little decision we make, our heart is hardened and we move further and further away from trust in Christ. See, our world is always, sometimes explicitly, but always subtly, it's always pushing us to forget God, give up on Jesus and just live for this world. For Israel, the world was Canaan with its false gods and seductive immorality. For us, our world is Sydney, with its false gods and seductive immorality. It's absolutely no different. Yes, they worshipped idols made of stone and wood. Some of our idols are made of stone and wood as well, and we live in them. You see, we, we have our idols in our city that seduce us, just like the idols of the Canaanites seduce them. The opportunities for us to compromise our personal godliness are endless, and the pressure on us to change what we believe to justify our sin is enormous. See, I think no Christian 
wakes up one morning and says, today I am going to commit sexual immorality. No Israelite woke up one morning and said, today I am going to commit sexual immorality. But just like they made little decisions to just get friendlier and friendlier with the pagans they were living alongside, so we start making little decisions to start watching that TV show or visiting that website. Each little decision we can justify, it's not a sin. But they all lead to the same place, into sin and away from Jesus. No Christian sets out to get entangled in the greed of this world. If we just make little decisions, little decisions about what we spend our money on, about how we use our time, little decisions about who we turn to for advice and each little decision we can justify, but they all lead to the same place, to getting entangled in the world and turning away from Jesus. No Christian wakes up one morning and sets out to abandon the faith. Do you know what? I'm going to give up. But we make little decisions about the priority of church and little decisions about the people we allow to influence us and little decisions about how we use our time. Each little decision we can justify but they all lead to the same place, away from Jesus. This is the New Testament equivalent, it's the passage I referred to last week, we're going to see it a lot in Judges because the New Testament equivalent to the book of Judges, take out your outline, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14, Jesus says, sorry Paul says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Now generally that verse gets used to talk about don't put yourself in that position of marrying an unbeliever. Don't put yourself in that, how could you tie yourself in the most intimate and close relationship with someone who does not share your most fundamental thing, your faith in Christ. But it's actually much broader than that. It's wanting to challenge you and say, well, who do you turn to for advice? Who do you, who do you bind yourself to? Who do you listen to? Who do you connect yourself with? You see, if it's someone who's not a believer, they're on a totally different path to you and you're likely to end up following their path. Hebrews 12 is another passage that I think picks up on the themes of the book of Judges. It says, Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. See what we need to do? We don't need to entangle ourselves in the world, we need to throw off the things that entangle us. We don't need to bind ourselves to the world, we need to throw off the things that are going to ensnare us. And the thing is, this is not easy, even in theory, because the reality is, this side of Jesus' return, we have to live in this world. That is the reality. And we are not in a promised land where it's only other believers and God doesn't want us to live in a promised land at this point where it's only other believers and we have family and we have friends who are not followers of Jesus and we want to love them and we want to honour them and we want to respect them but we need to influence them, not have them influence us. And This is the hardest thing in the world if your parents are not believers. Because if your parents are not believers, you have to honour them and you have to respect them, but you have a totally different way of looking at the world. And they will want to give you advice and they will want to give you help and sometimes it will not be the help and the advice you need and yet they are your parents and you have to honour them. And that is the hardest, toughest thing in the world, I think. But remember this always, 
We live in this world so that we influence them, not so that they influence us. Hear the warning and the challenge of the book of Judges. Well, the final lesson from this passage comes right at the end. I want you to just look in the last couple of verses at Israel's response to what God said. Chapter 2, verse 4. It says, When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bokim, which means weeping, and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. It sounds positive, doesn't it? It sounds like they're saying, we've got it wrong, but now we're going to get it right. They were upset, they wept, they tried to make up for it by making sacrifices to God. But feeling sorry and doing a bit of religion is not the same as faith and repentance. You see, next week we'll see very, very quickly, in fact, almost as soon as they walked away from this place, they quickly forgot and just went back to living amongst the Canaanites. They went back to ignoring God, they went straight back to worshipping idols. And that shows you that whatever this was, I'm sure they were genuinely sorry, but I think they were sorry that God was angry with them rather than sorry for what they had done. You see, whatever this was, it wasn't real repentance because real repentance is not just feeling sorry, it's a change of heart that leads to a change of life. I love the story of Zacchaeus in Luke's Gospel in the New Testament. Everyone know the story of Zacchaeus? You know the little man, the tiny little guy who can't see Jesus so he climbs the tree? You know how I warned you last week how because I've just been in Jerusalem I'm going to tell you a story from there every week? Well, here's this week's. In Jericho, you can go to Zacchaeus's tree. <laughs> it's a sycamore tree and that's what he climbed and I went there, I went to Jericho, I went to and this Muslim man said to me, do you know that is Zacchaeus's tree? And I said, it doesn't look 2,000 years old to me. He said, oh, maybe it's a tree like Zacchaeus's tree. <laughs> and he wanted me to give him some money. But, you know, he then, he told me the story. And he didn't know I was a Christian minister, you know. So here's this Muslim man telling me the story of Zacchaeus. It's amazing what the chance of a 50 shekel tip will do for you. But here, here he was telling me the story from Luke's Gospel about Zacchaeus and he reminded me, he said, Zacchaeus was a terrible man who swindled people out of their money, but when he met Jesus, he repented. Do you remember the story? you remember what he did? He didn't just say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and start crying. He said, I am going to go and pay half of my money to the poor. And I'm going to track down every person I've stolen money off and pay them back four times what I owe them. Now, unfortunately, that man who was telling me the story he seemed to be under the impression that it was because of that that Jesus forgave him but when you go and read the story read it later Jesus had already forgiven Zacchaeus at that point and Zacchaeus responded in repentance see he wasn't saved because he repented it's because he was forgiven and because of the love of Jesus he genuinely repented of his sin and now he wanted to live to please Jesus. And so I want to say to you tonight, when you fail, and you will, just like when I fail, and I will, because we will allow ourselves to be influenced by the world. But when God's Word points out the sin in your life, don't justify it. Don't explain why you're different and that doesn't apply to you. And don't just feel sorry and do a bit more religion for a while. When God's Word points out the sin in your life, 
take a hold of the forgiveness you have in Christ and repent. That's all we need to do. Be truly repentant. Take real steps to throw off the sin and get rid of it, that sin that so easily entangles us and instead focus your mind on Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Judges and all it teaches us and we pray that we might never forget that you are faithful. Even when we fall and stumble, you are faithful. Father, we pray that knowing that, we will want to be truly repentant. Help us to learn from the warning of the Israelites. Help us not to entangle ourselves in this world. Help ourselves not to bind us to unbelievers. Instead, Father, help us to live for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.